It's Friday, October 23rd. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, it's Tough Questions Friday. This week, we talk about the social media platforms. Facebook and Twitter are still reeling from a New York Post story last week. Now, Facebook says it won't ban as much content after the election. Disinformation is being used to divide us along racial lines. Did we learn anything from 2016? And Nigeria, Belarus, and global protest movements will put all of those topics to our CEO, Suzanne Nassel. Then, The Disaster Tourist. We speak to Korean novelist Yoon Koon about her latest novel, publishing in South Korea amid a pandemic, and what's on her bookshelf. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Now it's time for Tough Questions. That's where we put tricky questions about free expression to Pen America CEO, Suzanne Nassel. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So I want to start, uh, you know, last week we talked about this New York Post story and the social platforms, reactions to it. Then this week there was a story about how Mark Zuckerberg says that after the election, there will be fewer content bans on Facebook. Do you worry that no matter what happens in the presidential election, once it's all over, folks will decide that disinformation just isn't a threat anymore? I do worry about that. You know, there has been a great intensification of interest in how we safeguard our democracy from disinformation, voter suppression efforts, uh, a polarized media ecosystem. And I really think these are systemic failures that, you know, we are foolish if we believe that, you know, even if the election might turn out how certain people are hoping that, you know, we can then put this issue to rest. I think Rebuilding our information ecosystem you know, as an underpinning of our democracy has to be a first order priority for this country going forward. I, mean, I believe for a long time since the report that we did in 2017, faking the news, documenting that disinformation, even though it's overwhelmingly protected by the First Amendment, nonetheless constitutes a threat to free expression. In some ways, a more insidious threat to free expression than, uh, you know, other kinds of noxious speech, because you really can't regulate it out of existence. You know, our government could not uh, because of the protections of the First Amendment. And so I think we owe it to ourselves to implement a much more sweeping effort to inoculate the American public. And we've been talking about this for years with disinformation defense. You know, it used to be called media literacy. That mm -hmm. term became kind of tired. There was a media literacy movement about a decade ago that had some momentum. And I think it just sort of lacked the burning platform. People couldn't see how urgent it was. People were migrating online for their news consumption. And so those habits were changing, but the real risks and perils of that were not yet uh, apparent. Now they are, and there have been some states that have mandated uh, media literacy or disinformation defense curricula, and I think that needs to be nationalized. You know, just as we're teaching kids to analyze a short story and you know learn algebra in elementary school, I think we ought to be teaching them the tools to navigate the information landscape that they operate in. So that's interesting. We're talking about the dissemination side. At the same time, this week, you know, we looked at sort of how that information spreads and disinformation can spread, um, particularly 
disinformation about voting and how it's targeting specific ethnic groups in places like Florida. Um, in that case, it was Latinx voters basically being pitted against um, Black Lives Matter, you know, and it, it was getting a lot of traction online, but then it was moving to radio and broadcast, you know, the things that, you know, sometimes we don't think about, but that's another way that some of this disinformation is spreading. I mean, do you think that people have learned anything from 2016? Are we better prepared for these types of targeted disinformation campaigns? Look, I think there's greater awareness of the problem, and there have been some really interesting studies of how disinformation moves through the ecosystem. You know, your point about how it migrates from online to the mainstream media, there's a study done by Harvard demonstrating that really it is the mainstream media that uh, is amplifying these claims and giving them the greatest oxygen. Yes, they travel on social media, but it's very often people sharing mainstream media stories. And so there's an interplay there. This is not a problem by any means that is confined to social media. And I think, you know, what the example that you bring up in terms of, uh, you know, pitting Latinx and Black Lives Matter uh, supporters against one another speaks to is just the incredible difficulty of cutting this off at the source. And obviously the platforms are trying to do that, you know, these sweeping measures that we've seen at Facebook and now TikTok in relation to QAnon, you know, shutting down many accounts, but we also know they'll never shut down everything. And there are kind of these gradations. I mean, one person um, has termed it pastel, it's kind of QAnon, uh, you know, which is a kind of um, softened messaging about that conspiracy theory that can evade the triggers uh, in the social media platforms that prompt that content to be taken down. And so it's always going to be a cat and mouse game on the supply side, which is why we think there needs to be great emphasis on the demand side, uh, you know, in terms of helping people become more discerning, broader in their information diets. You know, ultimately, I don't think this is going to be solved with that. That, you know, in terms of what has changed, I do think some of the, you know, we talked about the New York Post and the Hunter Biden story, but the aggressiveness with which both Twitter and Facebook moved on that, you know, we just didn't see in 2016. You know, uh, I think that would have been reported and amplified, sort of straight up for a long time, and then people would have complained after the fact about how, uh, it, you know, it was inimical and, 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 and destructive and perhaps a foreign information operation. But uh, I don't think it would have been acted on in real time in terms of impairing the, the, the algorithmic amplification on the platforms. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, I, I want to lastly do our best to, like, look outside of the United States for just a brief moment. Um, you know, this week we saw a really violent crackdown against protesters in, in Nigeria. Um, there's a looming ultimatum in Belarus that could lead to more demonstrations in that country. You know, what, what lessons do you think we can draw from what's happening right now globally in terms of, of, of greater demonstrations, but also greater crackdowns? And, and, you know, how might that inform what could happen here in the next few weeks? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely an interplay. You know, what we saw out on the streets during June and July in relation to the protests over racial injustice and the overbearing tactics of police in some cities, uh, you know, the attacks on press freedom that we and other organizations documented at that time were images that people hadn't seen out of the United States. And I think they they compound this 
trend line over the last few years of the U.S. frittering away its moral authority as a force for press freedom and, you know, so many other human rights issues. And I think that has a kind of emboldening effect on security forces around the world where they feel uh, even if condemnation, governments feel that even if condemnation might come their way in the wake of heavy handed tactics, you know, it's going to be less forceful or less credible. And, you know, as we know, this administration has not been much of a voice, except very selectively in places like Venezuela, in terms of calling out governments that uh, embrace authoritarian tactics. And so I think it's a, it's a concern. I think it also has a reverberating effect here. You know, Trump sees these tactics. You know, he uh, is notoriously, you know, feels this affinity toward autocratic leaders around the world. He sees what they do. I think there's something about that forcefulness that's very attractive to him. I think he's somebody who wants to crack down uh, if he can have the opportunity to do so. And there's this you know, interplay in these situations like in Nigeria, where it seems the protests were peaceful, but then the security forces are always out on the lookout for anything that smacks of disobedience or law breaking to then justify, you know, in that case, just a, a blood chilling uh, firing of live fire into a group of protesters, you know, willfully and seemingly unprovoked, at least insofar as the video shows. And so, you know, I, I think while we need to remain calm and have some faith and expectation that this country is capable of pulling off an election and a post-election process that are going to run smoothly and that cooler heads will prevail and people will behave responsibly. You know, I also think we have to be very much on our guard because it's, it's a precarious moment both here and around the world. Absolutely. Well, Suzanne Nassel is CEO of PEN America and author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks for doing this. Take care. The Disaster Tourist, the latest from novelist Yun Koon, tells the story of Yona, whose company specializes in sending tourists to disaster sites. The book contends with capitalism and climate change, workplace hierarchy, and human psychology. Yun Koon and the book's translator, Lizzie Bueller, join me now. Welcome to you both. Hello. Koon, <laughs> how did you come upon this premise? When I am trying to write a book, uh, or when I'm beginning to write a book, I, there are a lot of um, factors that inspire me. And in this case, um, this book was written eight years ago, but I was inspired when I um, saw a documentary about the um, earthquake and Fukushima disaster in Japan and about um, the sort of resulting dark tourism industry that resulted. So this idea of of extreme tourism or disaster holidays, you know, how do you think readers might might interpret such a concept amid a global pandemic? 
So people who read this book aren't necessarily going to feel like they want to travel, are they? Um, and this fits in well with the current Corona period because um, people aren't able to travel and it's starting to sort of wear on them. So I think that this uh, book is really appropriate for the current time period because it gives the readers the feeling that they're traveling but without actually leaving their own homes. I mean, this idea of 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 disaster tourism, but also uh, the, the the book contends with workplace hierarchy and, and the sort of uh, experiences that Yona goes through. Is any of that informed by your by your own experience, either as a writer or professionally? So I wrote this book out of, um, based on not only my personal experiences, but also the experiences of my friends and my family in the workplace. And in Korea, there is a word, kapdir, which refers to the abuse of power by um, people with in positions of authority. And when I was writing um, The Disaster Tourist, I purposefully um, gave Yona a mid-level position at Jungle. She's not the top of the company's hierarchy, nor is she a new employee, which means that she's both subject to harassment by her own higher-ups, but is also able to um, abuse those who are below her. Right, right. Well, so, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the, the English version of this book has just published. But I'm just wondering, as, a, as an author more generally, having a, a book come out amid a pandemic is, is a challenge. You know, how, how are authors, how are you, how are other authors, especially in Korea, negotiating this, you know, moment of, you know, book tours and readings that are being done either virtually or at a much reduced scale? This is, of course, everyone's first time to be going through, um, you know, a, a pandemic that's affecting us in this way. So to be honest, I don't really know what I'm doing any more than anyone else. But um, I think that the process of um, publishing a book during this time has given me the opportunity to try a lot of new things, such as this interview, which is um, occurring with all of us at our own homes. Um, and in Korea, I've also been doing readings and some other interviews um, through Zoom and uh, similar online interfaces. Um, and in general, meetings that would have been in person in the past are now you know, occurring from the comfort of our own homes. And as a writer, that's, it's unfamiliar, but it's not bad to, to be at home and, you know, be able to, to do a reading with a, a beer or wine at my table. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to see people in person again. But I think that this, um, this time frame is going to be looked back on as a, an interesting experience and an interesting memory. No, no, no question. And I, I, I support the beer or wine uh, on standby. Um, finally, uh, Cohen, what are you reading right now? So I normally read multiple books at the same time. So I'll have one book uh, by my bed, another book in my bag, you know, as I, uh, to read as I'm, I'm going different places. So I tend to have a different book for each, um, you know, location that I'm in throughout the day. And currently one book that I've been enjoying is an art book um, that uh, focuses on the work of uh, movie designer Annie Atkins, who um, 
did the design for Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. And this book um, has images that show her work for a variety of different movies. And I've been enjoying this book for perhaps 20 minutes each day, just as a little um, a little uh, pleasure read um, in the midst of my work. Yeah, a beautiful film and, a, and a, an amazing book. So novelist Yun Kun and, and translator Lizzie Bueller, the book is The Disaster Tourist. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our episode for Friday, October 23rd. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can tune in on conversations about the election, disinformation, and how to prepare for all of the possible outcomes. We'll have more on this podcast and online at our website, pen.org, and across our social channels. Hashtag what to expect 2020. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Tuesday. Have a great weekend.